0: You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Major General Roger Noble. General Noble is a senior officer in the Australian Army, currently serving as the head of military strategic commitments. General Noble, welcome to the show. An honor to have you, sir.
1: Yeah, great to be here, John.
0: If you don't mind, sir, I'd like to start the conversation with discussing your time in Iraq, especially any observations you had dealing with major urban combat operations during the fight against the Islamic State. Can you tell me what time period you were in Iraq and what, were your, what was your position and general duties?
1: Yeah, well, I, I, uh, my, it was my third time to Iraq, so I went back in um, 2016, got there late February through to the end of November, And I guess the key point is uh, I was the deputy commanding general or the deputy commander for the land component, which was at that time based on the 101st Airborne Screaming Eagles coming out of Tennessee and Kentucky. So I worked for General Valeski and we went in, following in behind the 82nd Sajiflik, and they had just successfully cleared Ramadi, which was really the first major step forward against Islamic State who up until that time had been advancing quickly towards Baghdad and so my time there spanned really two major battles which was clearance of Fallujah and then the beginning of the attack on Mosul. But really the campaign was clearing uh, ISIS from the Euphrates River Valley, advancing up the Tigris River Valley onto Mosul. So it was a uh, kind of got there at the right time for a professional urban warfighting experience.
0: And that's a pretty exciting time to get there, with the amount of cities that have already been taken by ISIS in 2014.
1: Yeah, well, actually, one of the key things was the at that time there was not a lot of confidence in Iraq. The successful retaking of Ramadi was their really first positive step forward, and before that had been quite bleak. So the Iraqi population's view and was pretty negative. ISIS was seen as all dominant, uh, unbeatable. And that first step with Ramadi was just the beginning. And there was a long way to Mosul.
0: From your vantage point, what was the character of the fighting when you got there?
1: Well, I think the biggest shock for me was, you know, I've been to Iraq before. And for a lot of it, a lot of people have been there, a lot of Americans in particular. And they're already they're familiar with the counterinsurgency fight. And depending when you were there, that got pretty conventional, uh, particularly during the surge in places like Ramadi. But it was a counterinsurgency fight. But when we got back this time... It was against an enemy that was effectively fighting a conventional defense in urban terrain. And I I was not quite expecting that. They were using unconventional weapons and unconventional means to generate a uh, really a conventional defensive setup around the urban terrain. And they were forced into the urban terrain because out in the open they were too vulnerable. So the the enemy, um, uh, probably my biggest lesson I learned every time I go to a war is uh, pay a lot of attention to the enemy, understand exactly how they think and how they operate. And these guys were clever, ruthless, and used everything they had to generate a pretty conventional defensive effect.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of different scholars have said that this time period, really both in Iraq and in Syria, was almost a return to siege warfare where the enemy was embedding themselves in cities. Building up these big defensive plans and basically saying, "Hey, come and get me."
1: That's right. So they, uh, so to give people an idea, they're not; a, they were not a conventional army, although they were armed with the weapons of a conventional army, and because they'd taken it off the Iraqi army. But to do for a defensive set, so they didn't have a lot of mines to do complex obstacles. So they would use IED belts sewed in the hundreds and the thousands. So you get a the equivalent of a obstacle effect if you don't have a tank or you don't have a large caliber direct fire weapons, what do you do? You use vehicle-borne IEDs and you use suicide bombers, individuals, who blow a hole. When you want to blow a hole, where we would do with a tank round, they can do it with a human. So they were pretty sophisticated in putting that all together to give really a conventional defense, which meant I didn't think I'd ever be doing it, but conventional, divisional and core attacks against prepared positions in urban terrain.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I call that the city attack. We might call it a, a deliberate attack with a penetration an encirclement an envelopment. We have a bunch of fancy words for it. I mean, you're basically attacking a city of defenders.
1: Oh, that's exactly right. And a city like Mosul, that's a million people. So we would sometimes catch ourselves going, are we really going to participate in this attack against a city of a million people? And so the big lesson is you don't do that overnight, You've got to think about that months in advance, and it becomes a really a whole of Iraqi government interagency, international effort to make that successful. It's not just a tactical problem, you know, in clearing the enemy from buildings. It's the whole setup that makes that successful in the longer term.
0: So is that what happened? It took months just to plan for the attack on Mosul?
1: Yeah, so we, I mean, I was lucky enough. I went to Tennessee and went to the home of the 101st, And back then, we, you know, we were trying to divine the strategic intent and what the objectives were for our tour in Iraq, and it kind of distilled down into get Mosul. That was it. So, and there's a long story behind that, but that did not look conceivable when we went in, having Ramadi just fallen and the Iraqis still kind of stalemated and not really advancing other than in Ramadi, which had taken a long time. But what uh, General Valesky, the CG, the 101st, his view is let's plan through to getting Mosul. So we adopted a campaign approach about what it would take to clear, advance and sustain attack to clear Mosul, which is, uh, as I just said, a million person city. So uh, the big lesson for me is in a big struggle like that, you've got to think well ahead. And it's classic campaigning sequencing what you're doing, understanding the steps to get there. And I'll be frank, at the beginning, we didn't think we'd get to Mosul. We thought we'd get some way towards it. By the time we left, the attack was underway and uh, pretty well advanced. So I think the key was we thought it through intellectually and adjusting it all the time right from the beginning. And of course, it didn't go as we thought it would go, but we had branches, sequels, constantly adjusting, if that makes sense to you.
0: Yeah, for sure. Even if we look back at the American-led attacks on Fallujah, the strategic thinking was there, but most people forget about the first. The what is the political objective and the political will for the operation was that a major concern for your time there, uh, maintaining political will.
1: Oh, absolutely, it's the thing actually. So the difference is this time wasn't coalition troops on the ground doing the clearing, doing the fighting, and I remember you know being a battle group commander in Iraq, we were always getting the Iraqis to lead. But if it didn't go well, we could do it. We could find a way to do it. This time, we were relying on the Iraqis to do it because we were not permitted to do it or resourced to do it. So guess what? They are in charge, ultimately, of the plan. So they really did lead the the fight from the outset. And then we learnt from, um, I think Fallujah for me was the battle where I probably learned more lessons than I've ever learnt in my life. This is Fallujah 2016. Because the Iraqi approach to it was all about defeating the enemy and winning the cognitive fight against them, convincing them that they had lost rather than clearing the city and killing them all. Ah. So I can tell you a bit more about that, but that shaped their entire plan. So we in the West, it's a maneuver tactical plan focused on the enemy and our principal method is destroy, clear. Their mindset was we've got to get these guys to understand they're defeated and for them to leave, surrender, or lose the will to fight. So their manoeuvre plan was really part of a big IO campaign, which is the reverse of us in some ways. And uh, it was they were extremely successful in Fallujah, adopting that approach. They tried it again in Mosul for a different set of reasons. It didn't work quite as well. But the logic of let's convince them they've lost... They, so they would say to you, we're going to liberate Fallujah, not clear it. And it was a lot of coalition Iraqi frustration around that because I think two different world views about how you approach a fight and you know we wanted them to clear it they wanted to liberate it and in the end I think their model proved very successful.
0: Yeah I did see some national media kind of in frustration I guess I mean they did siege Fallujah for about three months was that done on purpose in order to be able to place effects into the city without having to clear it?
1: One of the salutary lessons from urban combat is it's hard, difficult, and lethal. So, you know, there's no shortage of people telling the Iraqi army to go faster and to clear this and do that, you know. But if you're on the Tatafa Bridge at Objective Peach south of Fallujah and you're trying to attack through a prepared position, that ain't an easy thing to do. So what the Iraqis, I think they did, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm going to talk them through it, is they basically surrounded the city. They managed the stakeholders. So this is the most interesting thing. The stakeholders in the attack on Fallujah were in the hundreds, and the big ones were the Coalition, the Iranians, the Popular Mobilization Force, of which there are about 340 different versions and groups, the Iraqi Security Force, but they weren't homogenous. So you got the Iraqi Army, the Counterterrorism Service, and the Federal Police, all with different allegiances, objectives, and controls. And then they used... The whole, the really clever thing they did was they used Iraqi society. So they messaged into Fallujah through the tribes, the connections, the cha- Islamic charities, and the UN as well. So the UN was running a, as it does, trying to mitigate the impact on civilians. And I think Iraqis kind of arrayed that around the city with a kind of clear message to ISIS in the city, which is you've lost. It's just a matter of time. You're going to die. If you're an Iraqi, hmm, you might get it. We might think about keeping you. So they put all that in a big pressure around them and then eventually built really very slow tactical advance on multiple axes, which we didn't like. We thought if you mass your combat power, you'll get in quicker. But for them, it wasn't a race, it was a, an effort to get the enemy to conform to what you want them to do, which is leave. Uh, so we were frustrated. You could go quicker. You could do it a bit better ways. You don't really need 15 axes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they were going in the very Iraqi way. This is how we're going to do it. And in the end, much to, I think, the coalition's surprise, certainly I was surprised, it worked pretty well. So there was a breaking point with the enemy, and they did it eventually make a big breakout from the city rather than staying and fighting to the death.
0: Yeah, fascinating. So did they empty the city of people or no?
1: There was a lot of people in the city. They had, the enemy had tried to hold some of them in. They made it difficult for them to leave, but they weren't as sophisticated as they became. So in Mosul, they used the civilians as a part of the maneuver plan and literally more than human shield, they moved them around and ensured they were a, uh, I think they learned from Romani and Fallujah. But in Fallujah, they, Tried to control them. They didn't let them out of the city, but they hadn't closed it off. And then the UN, with the Iraqi government, Iraqi stakeholders, managed to create a few mechanisms. They had a humanitarian corridor where civilians could, to a limited extent, get out and get away. But one of the big constraints on the Iraqis... Oh, and the coalition, was the civilians in the city. You've got to obey the laws of uh, humanitarian law and the laws of armed conflict. That's not negotiable. So the more civilians, the closer they're entangled into the fight, the slower it gets generally, and uh, the risks go up that you're going to inadvertently kill them. And given the purpose was to liberate, there's no point liberating a city if you kill every all the people who live in it. <laughs> so it was a very difficult problem. But I think Iraqis, particularly in Fallujah, were successful in kind of mitigating the ISIS capacity to exploit the civilians. Although it wasn't a good place to be for a civilian, I can tell you that much.
0: You just mentioned something that reminded me about risk. I was reading an interview you did back in 2016. You said basically your observations of the fighting up to that point was that it was a lot of conventional ground combat with high casualties and high risk. What do you define as risk, especially in these major urban fights?
1: Well, I think underneath all the campaigns and the IO and the narrative and is the close combat piece. And what I saw time and time again is the whole thing rests, basically, on the capacity for the Iraqi army to win in a fight because that's the currency of your narrative. We will beat you. We can defeat you in close combat in an urban situation where you've prepared for us to come. So it was critical that the Iraqi army was successful. And uh, so we put a lot of effort around their combat forces to make them do that. But in the end, tremendous risks on the individuals and the units involved. In the end, it's some infantry company with a bunch of tanks and combat engineers closing in on a on a prepared position. That's the critical requirement. You've got to be able to do that. And the Iraqi army, I mean, plenty of people line up to criticize them. They were better than the enemy when they were well-armed, equipped, and enabled, and they could win in that situation, but at tremendous cost. So I always like to say it in public. There's a lot of Iraqi, they would call them heroes, Americans would too, but fallen soldiers whose commitment was unquestionably as high as it gets. So that's you've got to be good enough at the tactical level to let the rest happen. Therefore, there's high risk to the people involved in that, and it's risk to mission if you can't do it. Because as soon as the enemy can stop you, your narrative falls falls apart. Does that make sense to you?
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Was there ever a risk of losing political will throughout the country or with other stakeholders?
1: That's a very good question. And one of the beauties of ISIS, if there is any, is that they were so hated that they unified enemies against them. And the Iraqis would often comment, out, I never thought I'd see those five people in a room because they were united in the defeat of ISIS. So, in a, it, there was a quite a strong commitment to defeat them, but there was low levels of confidence initially in the capacity to be able to do it. And then the Iraqi government, the Iraqi government. So, it's a democracy and a pretty, what, what's the right word, vibrant one. So, uh, I think the prime minister, I actually used to talk to in the strike cell a bit. Like, they were pretty politically clear on what they were going to do and they were focused heavily on the defeat of ISIS. It was about trying to hold the whole thing together with enough confidence to enable them to do it. So that's why they they had to be successful and they had to have an IO campaign that targeted the enemy but also the population and also understood what the population was thinking. And anybody who's had 10 minutes in Iraq knows that ain't an easy thing to do. Because Iraqis ain't Iraqis. Depends where they're from and who they are and uh, what their connections are. No different to us, really, but just in their own own context. So it became anything that threatened that kind of national will became a major threat for us. So you might remember yeah, the enemy knew Baghdad's the heart of everything. So they were always trying to attack Baghdad, and they would do the more what most Americans remember from the. Con- counterinsurgency is they do the big bomb attacks in Baghdad and they were trying to undermine confidence in the government and undermine the narrative that we that that they could actually defeat ISIS. so that political struggle for confidence and purpose went on all the time and anytime there was a you know and the enemy were really aggressive so I don't lose a day's sleep about fighting those guys nothing good about them at all. But the one thing they taught me was the power of aggression. So any opportunity they had, they attacked. And they were every, when they did that successfully, which they occasionally did, a tactical success of no real tactical significance could have a strategic impact because it would make them, everybody, can we really win? Uh, can we ever stop them? And that, that was just a rolling part of that narrative clash with them.
0: You mentioned capacity. And I know even going back to before you got there, looking at contingencies of what it would take to liberate Mosul. I mean, that's a major city. It's it's not a mega city, but it's a major city. Were there any surprises in planning or execution in what it would take or what you needed?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll give you some really simple examples that struck me. And this is the value of the, you got to take the long view and a campaign view and sequence what you do mentally. So one of our observations was we would need a major forward operating base close to Mosul in order to support the attack and the place selected was Key West I mean, a lot of Americans would remember that place south of Mosul west of the Tigris but we had to capture Key West and then we had to restore it so just a simple thing it was destroyed completely and seated with IEDs so to build a forward operating base and protect it we needed T-Wall's So I remember the conversation about T-walls, right? How many T-walls do we need? And then some U.S. Army engineer goes 5,928 T-walls. I said to him, well, how long are we going to take to get that? He said about six months. (laughs) So, you know, order the T-walls. So we ordered the T-walls before we took a step towards Key West. It's just one of those millions of details that if you don't sequence and plan, you won't do. Another example is Iraqi Army basically had one bridge, one floating bridge. To cross the Tigris, and uh, you know, for a whole pile of complex reasons, we did an assault river crossing across the Tigris, and we had this one bridge. I can tell you, if you want to lose sleep at night, just have one bridge. So all of our efforts were around: don't let them, don't let the enemy get the bridge; don't let them know where they're going to cross; protect the bridge. So you know, therefore. The bridge was watched as it moved across Iraq, everywhere it went. The whole operation was sequenced around protecting the bridge. And uh, I'll tell you this story because it's to this day, I never underestimate the enemy. So we did everything pretty well. We get the bridge in, Iraqi army's crossing. Some smart engineer major had said about two months before, you better have a uh, way of protecting the bridge from underwater and from the water. And I'm going, what are you thinking, frogmen or something? Everybody laughed. So we're going across the bridge and then, of course, it's a river, right? So rivers flow in one direction and upstream is the enemy. So the enemy get hundreds of IEDs, put them in fridges, you know, like in your kitchen, tape the fridge up because fridges are watertight, full of IEDs and just float them down the river at the bridge. So there, there we are going, didn't think of that one. So there's the Tigris River full of bombs floating towards the bridge with the Iraqi army firing every heavy caliber weapon at them and the engineer major who said make sure we put that net thing in which we put in it stopped it stopped the bombs from wedging under the bridge and blowing it up so i often think you know attention to detail think it through don't underestimate the enemy <laughs> we didn't lose the bridge
0: which was good <laughs> good for everybody <laughs> that's fascinating especially the t-wall so I, I wrote my very first urban warfare article about concrete and how I, as a company commander in Iraq, I became an expert on concrete. The article is actually called the most effective weapon on the modern battlefield is concrete.
1: Hey, that and a spade. So I, had a, uh, I used to have a slide, mainly for Air Force officers, of a picture of a Joint Strike Fighter or something like that. With a, the value under it of, you know, millions of dollars. And next to it, a spade, value five bucks, or, you know, two bucks. And that's what ISIS did to defeat us. They just dug holes under the ground. And uh, it's not a new thing. been doing it a long time. I think it started in the U.S. Civil War. So you dig a good hole and you prepare yourself well. And then in the 21st century, if you can concrete it up as well, you're a pretty hard target. You just, you know, it ends up some infantryman's going to climb in there and get you uh, for all the technology in the world. So that's a kind of salutary lesson.
0: Yeah, for sure. Was the sub-training aspect a major obstacle to forward momentum?
1: Uh, in the urban areas, it was. And they were good at it in defense. So an example from Fallujah, actually, they tunneled under the advance route. And when the Iraqi army advanced through and penetrated the kind of forward defensive line, the enemy went underneath them and came up behind them and uh, attacked them from the rear. So in a a single day south of Fallujah, they lost four M1 Abrams. And I, I think I was about... 40 years old before anybody lost an M1A ramp, you know what I mean? A tank. And uh, this was just cleverness. Dig ourselves some options. So it wasn't on an industrial scale, but it was a clever tactical tool that they used. And then they fortified and dug um, inside the city and uh, for protection, you know, because their problem was they had no air power limited ISR. They had to fight under this unblinking eye where death could come 24-7 from a whole range of platforms. And I often used to think surely they would be more constrained <laughs> than they were, but that's the world they in, And they learned to hide, camouflage, disguise, move with civilians in a way that, really taught me a lesson about what can be done. So if I'm ever under a, a uh, no air support scenario where i an unblinking eye, I won't give up now because I've watched what can be done if you're creative and aggressive and are determined.
0: Yeah, I've had a couple of guests say that. Sometimes, to include me, we get over-focused on the attack, but not necessarily on future scenarios where we'd be defending. And like you just said, where we don't have our powerful ISR and airstrike capabilities, but we're still... Trying to defend within a city.
1: The other tactical thing is, and it's, this is long discussed, but defence in an urban area, it's tough. But it's hard to win in the end. If the opposition has got their combined arms systems, they're sustained, uh, it's hard to win. You need an offensive component. And in my, that time I said it was in Iraq from February through November, the thing we did to them had the most impact was our targeting and influence in depth against them. Because at the beginning, they were able to, I saw them do a, through a UAV, basically a conventional company attack through the Peshmerga lines, where they used VBIDs, improvised bridging, UAVs, rockets, mortars, infantry, like a company attack done by ISIS in bad weather at night, because that's when we can't get at them. So one of their One of the big impacts they had, they'd often attack and the Iraqi army be defeated, you know, locally and tactically, which put them mentally on the back foot all the time. As the campaign went on, because we targeted them in depth, all domains is the terminology we'd use today, we degraded their offensive capacity. So they couldn't do anything but dig in and fight from prepared positions, which means a long, hard fight. But it takes away their capacity to regain the initiative and I think win so the other piece of that urban fight is to take that off them. Take the enemy's maneuver capacity off them and make it just worst case for them is you are going to hold your ground and that's your only option. And then mass your force, do your combine arms properly, and you'll beat them, which is kind of what the Iraqis did. It took a while.
0: So that brings up my next question. I know from my own experiences with the Iraqi army, not to superimpose my own thoughts of an army on them, but did they have, from what you saw, urban warfare doctrine?
1: No. So... I mean, a lot of us spent a lot of time training them, but we didn't teach them offensive urban warfare tactics, basically conventional. So, I mean, I did it myself. I trained an Iraqi brigade in 2005, and we did basically security and stability operations and counterinsurgency. So they didn't have that, really, that experience or that tradition, or, and they, doctrine is not something I saw much in the way we conceive of it, you know, a, a belt of documents that And a training system that implies it so one of the things the coalition did really well actually australia did it so did the us so did lots of countries i was watching the australians closely is we committed along with the coalition to train the combat brigades of the iraqi army who were going to do these fights and so behind the maneuver was this sequencing of brigades through that training effort where they were also equipped you know with some of the things that we would take as gotta have but they didn't have body armor helmets, proper small arms, etc. So that's where we could put it. You know, just in time training. Have you heard that? Just in time training. You punch through the brigade training thing at Taji, and then you drive north and attack ISIS. <laughs> Literally, that's what we were doing. So we, I think it was a essential high value add to get them to the point where they could do that new task of offensive operations uh, in complex terrain. Now, how'd that go? Mixed some units are good some not so good and you'll be completely unsurprised because i used to watch the units here australian trained some of them did really well some didn't and we would go why did that unit fail And when you deep dive you don't have to de- dive too deep it's not it's the normal things it's essentially leadership <laughs> so where units had good leadership and the leaders were involved in the training heavily they would often go on and perform well where they didn't have strong leadership where they weren't you know the battalion commanders not there the company commanders are not there in the training they'd fall apart when under the big test so the fundamentals of an army uh, are absolutely critical which is you know leadership and discipline and like all armies they were mixed and uh, you know it was no place for the faint-hearted the Iraqi army you were there to fight and under a lot of pressure. So they had a mixed response, but I look at them as a total team. Some units were very good. And then, you know, there was the Counterterrorism Service who'd been mentored and advised continuously, I think, from about 2003. And they were very, pretty high quality, used as assault infantry. So they had some pretty good units,
0: but a mixed bag across the whole force. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see that we trained the Iraqi military to be something, and combined arms maneuver into dense urban terrain wasn't one of the major training objectives.
1: No, that, that's, that's exactly right.
0: And of course, they, they like you said, they OJT, some did great, some didn't. I'm not going to ask if they had a lesson learned process, but do you think they took a lot away from it that they'll carry forward different organizations, different training, be prepared for future fights like this? I'm not sure.
1: What I can't really explain is the desperation. It wasn't an institutional discussion at the time. It was about, we've got to get ISIS out of this country. We invested very little time on what we would take to be normal in an army. So what is your AAR, big organizational training system learning curve, so that what that brigade learned there, the hard way, the next four don't have to. It just wasn't in that space at that time. And the other thing is, Iraqis are Iraqis. And a lot of people will laugh when they hear this, but don't try and turn the Iraqi army into the Australian army or the US army. It's got to be the Iraqi army. (laughs) And I think what was really good about this is they were in the lead for real. So it was their plan. So even when we didn't like it, and we would tell them, they owned it. So the more they did it, the stronger they got, particularly the senior officers as well, because they said, oh, we can do it. We can liberate a city can do that complex attack, the soldiers will actually eventually clear the position. So their their institutional confidence grew as we rolled towards Mosul. And I think they saw the value of the training and experience in a way that maybe they hadn't in the 10 years previously when counterinsurgency is a, big, a different kind of scenario. But I, I'm not sure where they'll end up. But my time there, I saw them, they did what they had to do. It was incredibly difficult, and they really did it themselves. Without us, it probably would have taken them a lot, lot longer, <laughs> years. So we were the, we were the critical and that we could speed them up, move them around, magnify their combat power by 10, and gave them great. The other thing everyone misses is confidence. So we, we gave them, the or the, the coalitions there, if it gets really grim, you know, they'll put a wall of fire around us or, you know, they'll fix it. It worked. So I was kind of more proud of the Iraqi army at the end of that year than at any time previously. And I'd send them a bit. The other thing I should tell you is the attack orders for Mosul given by the Iraqis to the Iraqis, prime minister there and then chief staff of the army and every senior general on an axis attacking Mosul in Arabic. And we sat with the CJTF Corps commander, the the divisional commander, and I, I got to sit in along the wall at the side and did not speak. So not many people know that. So that's where they got themselves to. Like the heartache of getting to that point, I won't take you through, but they did the orders. It was their plan and they executed it. And then so I was, in some ways, it was one of the proudest kind of professional days because we didn't speak. And there was one question of the coalition directed at the core commander, and that was about fires and support. Which was a pretty good question. So there's a lot of criticism in the Iraqi army and you can point to failures. There's a big long list, but they did pretty good in
0: 2016. So I'd like to highlight one of the criticisms because I get it a lot and I get requests from a lot of organizations to talk about the protection of civilians, not just in Iraq, but in Syria and what I call these major city attacks. Did you see, well, I know you foreshadowed, in even in 2016, in your ABC interview, you foreshadowed the use of civilians, and we just talked about actually moving them around, purposely using almost the international humanitarian law as a weapon against the attacker, knowing that they had to be restrained. Did you see any best practices that were developed in the Iraqi coalition-supported execution of this operation that you may have brought back with you?
1: Yeah. The thing about ISIS is it's all about the civilians. It's about the population. So their whole ideology, it's the caliphate. You can't have a caliphate without people. You can't have a caliphate without ground. So their whole organisational focus was on population control and management of perceptions. That's where they started. So they're always deeply invested in the population. And then as it progressed, they deliberately planned and used the population as a maneuver tool they did that more and more till the time by Mosul they were moving and shifting the population preventing it being in certain places in order to constrain our maneuver and slow us down because they knew exactly the requirements of international humanitarian law and didn't have to adhere to it because it's not in their rule book I would say best practice was, I thought the targeting engagement protocols that we set up were as good as I've ever seen because we were so ruthless on ourselves on, and this is what outsiders don't see. My boss said, don't kill any civilians. If in doubt, don't shoot. Wait, that was our mantra. So we would apply all the intelligence resources of the coalition to understand the civilian pattern of life and not five minutes before a strike, but three weeks before a strike. It was different to previous tours where you might look at a building, you might look at a target area. We would look at a whole area and track the pattern of life so that not only were you looking at the specific place you were shooting at, but you understood who had been moving in the area and what what normal looked like, the normal pattern of life. And only when you were confident there were no civilians would you shoot at all. So that was the model we applied. Now, what happens is sometimes you get it wrong. Sometimes you don't see the civilians. They're under the building <laughs> or they move in. And we had a set of protocols. As soon as there was a, you suspected that might happen, you just wouldn't shoot. So the problem is the enemy pulled the civilians into the close fight and deliberately obscured where they were. So your confidence levels in being able to shoot go down, which slows you down. You have to do more. ISR, you have to take more precautions, which exposes your own troops who are in close proximity with the enemy. So they understood that calculus fully. I'd like to say publicly is, I did it. I was a target engagement authority, making decisions to shoot people. But I had a lot of confidence in the system. You know, we had lawyers, weapons experts, pilots, Iraqis, people who knew the ground, data banks to help us quickly make decisions about is that an appropriate should i shoot or not against a target you need a really r- rigorous self-assessment lessons learned process particularly when you're shooting in
0: complex terrain when there's a lot of innocent people no i think i want to flip the earlier question about what the iraqi army learned from this so You know, I've read the two Mosul study groups which were U.S. Army quick research projects. And what do you think that the Australian Army or the U.S. Army took from these battles in our beliefs of future combat? Um,
1: I have read one of the Mosul study group pieces. I think there's a bunch of tactical stuff. Our doctrine's actually pretty sound. You know, things like crossing an obstacle, sozra. Suppression, etc. So I don't think there was any revolutions in our approach to the tactical close fight. I think the big lessons were in that targeting piece and about adopting a. When I came out, I, I never heard the term all domain before in Iraq when I was in there. Iraq, but I came out and I went. That's what you do: the non-kinetic, kinetic, deep targeting of the adversary with all of your means in order to put him into a position where he can't be successful in that urban defense that's the thing that i learned and that's targeting a really comprehensive approach to targeting so it might be his physical capacity which is what we tend to do shoot at his tanks but the real one is shoot at his mind so get him into a position where they're not going to fight or they're going to fight in a way that suits you so he's a something i never i never thought i'd be involved in core attacks but the I never thought we would do big deception plans, but we did. And we used maneuver, fires, all of the plethora of IO means to get the enemy to not understand what you're doing or to deceive them or to get them to conform to what you wanted them to do. So I think it's that big. It's the tactical stuff, the fundamentals about how to use our weapons and clear. I don't think there's a revolution there, although even in my army, Combat shooting has changed in 15 years and it's gone and clearing buildings and the micro tactical is important, but it's an evolution on probably what we knew. It's how do we use all of our tools and they are prodigious, especially if you're the United States. So how do I use space, for example, without going into it? Or how do I use the full suite of influence tools that I have against that tactical enemy? So last example, there was a brigade attack attack at Shah Khot, which is south of Mosul, near Hawija. And it was towards the end of our time, and it was a kind of a separate supporting effort. We had time to plan it with the Iraqi army, and we did, I think, probably the first all-domain brigade attack against an enemy, where we used every single domain to deceive and influence them. And the enemy brigade left the city before we closed with them. And I went, that is pretty good. So that's a a long answer, but that's looking ahead at all the tools that are coming at us down our future pipe. How can we wind them all in around the infantryman who kicks the door in so that his
0: option is the best and the mission outcomes, you know, more likely to be achieved at a reasonable price. Yeah, the influence one kind of fascinates me. I don't know if I've asked you this already, but there were reports that kind of like in Fallujah, like you said, pressure to get in there and attack and clear there were reports in talafar where they started to encircle the city but left the kind of a back door to the city and because their objective was to retake the terrain not necessarily kill all the enemy it seems to fall into more this what is your goal
1: yeah it happened at fallujah so the iraqis i mean and when you think about it it comes back to your purpose so you're trying to kill all the enemy and we're Western guys, so we think the way to a man's heart is to kill the guy next to him. You know what I mean? And there's strength in that thinking. If you are a dominant tactical force, you're very difficult to resist mentally, not, not just physically. But the Iraqis went, we're going to try and beat this enemy and clear him out of our cities. So at the end of Fallujah, I think it was late June, when they surrounded the city, two big convoys came out on the, on the same day, full of ISIS. And they drove across the desert in different directions. So the initial coalition response in some places was, how the hell did they get out? Who let them out? You know what I mean? And to this day, I don't know. I have no knowledge that the Iraqis let them out. But it's not surprising to me. Because there's the IO that we knew and the IO we didn't know. And the messaging and the let them out the back door, the coalition will kill them all. Which is exactly Pretty much what happened. So there's that sophisticated. The difference between us and them. We were defeat ISIS. They were defend Iraq, defeat the ideology, get them out of our cities. Don't destroy the city if you can have, if you can. So I the backdoor idea, having a way out for the enemy, whether it was real or it was just telegraphed, is not a stupid thing to to consider. If you put a highly determined person into a prepared position and there's no way out, you know what our soldiers do, most of them, they'll fight.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure Sun Tzu said that thousands of years ago.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that was the thing. None of that's new. It's just context-driven and it's about your objective and it's actually it's also about the enemy. So one of the things I've noticed is people say I fight to the death. We've had scenarios in our army where those orders have been given. Occasionally it happens. But more often than not, it doesn't happen. In most armies, people don't generally do that. And there's combat psychology to back that up. So if you're trying to leverage against a defender, you want to give him the option to run away. Give him an option to stop fighting. So that's the power of that. You know, you can't underestimate the idea of targeting what they're thinking and then using all your tools to build a scenario that makes them do what you want them to do. And then if you have to, go in and clear around and kill them all if they won't comply.
0: Yeah, it's pretty straightforward with the compel them to do your will.
1: The other thing is, you know, you get a narrative running from survivors, which we could track as well. So we were tracking confidence in the confidence of the enemy. And uh, much to everybody's surprise, after Fallujah fell, Iraqi army cleared the Euphrates River Valley in about two months, which nobody thought they could do. And part of that was confidence in the enemy goes down. Our method's not working. We can't hold the caliphate. We can't hold the ground. We don't fight to the death. I've seen the guys who came out of Felicia. You know what I mean? So yeah, there's a cleverness in spreading the lack of resolve across the force, which I think the Iraqis understood because they understood ISIS very well. And they didn't view it as a homogenous set of humans. They viewed it as all different groups from different countries with different purposes of which a lot of whom were Iraqis and they spent a lot of time messaging the Iraqis within ISIS about how they should behave and what their options were and that's the cleverness of it that sometimes we're not looking hard enough to see was would be my observation
0: yeah there's so many lessons here and one of them is just a professional debate on what are the options when you start doing your what do we call it the operational design process of the planning before the planning do you know enough to start making there's different options than maybe what you're thinking about?
1: And it's that depth of understanding and the context. So if you're fighting in somebody else's country, like Iraq, only the Iraqis will know. We don't know what's really happening. We don't know what the connections are culturally. And The better we can understand them and the better we understand the levers that work, the better we will go. And it's really simple things. So... We got some, the Iraqis love leaflets. You know, in the Second World War, you drop leaflets. They love leaflets and they worked, much to the us modern guys' surprise. The only thing about a leaflet is you can't jam it. You can't turn the internet off on it. It floats down from the sky. So, for example, in Mosul, there was a death penalty to pick a leaflet up from ISIS. But we had one leaflet that we got printed in another regional country, which I won't name, where they'd use a version of Arabic and said something in a certain way that clearly wasn't Iraqi. It was clearly from one of these other countries. So a word and a phrase on a leaflet turned it from a positive thing into a reinforcing narrative piece for ISIS to use back at us, you know, see who's really behind this leaflet. So that kind of depth of understanding the context is something we all know from insurgency, but it actually applied in this kind of pretty conventional fight as well. You've got to know your enemy. You've got to know the ground, and you've got to know the big context in which it's all
0: happening. Yes, sir. You have to know your partner as well. I think one of the other questions I often get is because of the nastiness of these fights: is it a really ripe environment for ethical challenges?
1: Oh yeah. So nature of war, you know, violence, enmity, and hatred. That's close of it. That is exactly what's going on. So one of the big issues was. Everyone expected atrocities because the levels of discipline in all of the combatants and the situation. And the enemy prepared a message to atrocities, whether they happened or not. In fact, they would put people in Iraqi army uniforms, kill them, or have them kill other people and then use the video as evidence that the Iraqi army was murdering people or other agents. Normally, actually, the Popular Mobilisation Force. So sometimes it was true and sometimes it wasn't. But in these... Close combat, lots of violence and death, violence, enemy and hatred rules. (laughs) So the discipline of the force and the framework in which they operate uh, is always under pressure. I'll just leave it at that. And Western armies have had it too. I mean, US Army, Australia, we've all had it where soldiers get pushed a long way. If you want to go to a place where that is most under pressure, it'd be in that 300 metres of the enemy in the old city in Mosul in the last days of the fight. You know what I mean? Uh, we all got to watch it.
0: Yes, sir. And since we know this is a ripe environment for ethical challenges, some of those things that we know you have to do to combat this, good leadership, training, things like that, may have to be reinforced.
1: You know, you can talk forever about what makes a good army, but one of the things is discipline. The two things are discipline and leadership. The two go together, you know what I mean? And accountability. I'll tell you, I felt it. So as a target engagement authority, making decisions to shoot, I didn't do it half as much as some of my friends there. I knew I was accountable for the decision. I expected, if there was an allegation of a civilian casualty, regardless of who it came from, that it would be investigated. So that's it's that understanding intellectually that you there are set rules, you've got to stay with them. And then you need a system, discipline, training, and culture that reinforces, reinforces, reinforces it at every level. And then in the end, it's not generals generally. There'll be four soldiers going into a room. You know what I mean, and they'll be making a decision with one NCO. And do they make the right one? You know, and that's when an army is really tested by the conduct of its soldiers under pressure, who aren't haven't got some general leaning over, looking at them, telling them what to do.
0: Yes, sir. Well, this has been a fascinating talk, and I know listeners are just going to love hearing this firsthand experience.
1: Yeah, good mate. I'm very proud of the what we did. It was a seminal professional experience. I love the U.S. Army, and actually most of the armies we serve with are particularly the U.S. Army, and of all of the units in the U.S. Army, I shall always be a screaming eagle.
0: Thank you for your time, sir. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out IndieWise's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.